Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 18 on emergency ultrasound, we have with us Dr. Greg Hall, Dr. Jordan Chenkin, Dr. Paul Hannum, and Dr. Jason Fisher. Dr. Hall is an emergency physician at Brantford General Hospital and an assistant professor at McMaster University. He was the chief of the emergency department in Cambridge, Ontario for five years. He's a co-developer of the EDI2 course. He's a winner of multiple awards, including Clinician of the Year for his ultrasound instruction. Dr. Chenkin is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's a master instructor with the Canadian Emergency Ultrasound Society and an instructor for the EDI and the EDI2 ultrasound courses. He's conducted and published original research on training for ultrasound-assisted procedures. Dr. Hannum is an emergency physician and chief of emergency services at Toronto East General Hospital and a lecturer at the University of Toronto. He's an instructor for the EDI and the EDI-2 ultrasound courses and lectures on emergency ultrasound. Dr. Jason Fisher is an emergency physician at SickKids Hospital in Toronto, where he's the physician lead for emergency ultrasound. He's assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He completed his emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine training in Oakland, California, as well as emergency ultrasound fellowship. He's lectured and instructed physicians internationally on ultrasound and pediatric emergency medicine and leads the emergency ultrasound program at SickKids. Emergency ultrasound, or bedside ultrasound, or point-of-care ultrasound, whatever you want to call it, is rapid, shows real-time anatomy, and gives you useful decision-making info. All characteristics that are ideal for the busy emergency doctor. Whether you're a daily user of emergency ultrasound or have never touched an ultrasound probe, emergency ultrasound is here to stay. And we all need not only to develop our skills in ultrasound, but also know a little something about how to effectively and safely interpret those tiny white and black dots that make up the snowstorm we see on that screen. Sooner or later, it'll become, or perhaps already has become for some indications, a standard emergency medicine skill akin to reading ECGs. To understand where we've arrived at today with emergency ultrasound, I'll give you a little bit of background history. The use of emergency ultrasound started about 25 years ago as a response to poor access to radiology department ultrasound off hours. About 10 years ago, the teaching around ultrasound emphasized asking simple questions with binary answers. Does this patient have a triple A, yes or no? Does this woman have an intrauterine pregnancy, yes or no? We would come up with this yes or no answer and would help us with our decision making at 3 a.m. on a busy overnight shift. Nowadays, we're in the midst of an ultrasound revolution, and with the revolution comes controversy. On the one hand, it seems that emergency ultrasound has been eagerly advocated by someone somewhere for just about every indication you can think of in emergency medicine, sometimes with little or weak evidence or quality assurance to back up their claims. On the other hand, there's organizations like the Canadian Emergency Ultrasound Society that advocate that emergency department ultrasound must only be used in limited settings where there's 100% sensitivity achieved, no false negatives, and standardized level of skill that's mandated to ensure quality assurance. While most of us agree that emergency ultrasound is potentially useful in patient care, this usefulness is heavily dependent on operator skill and maintenance of those skills over time. And so the emergency ultrasound literature, most of which involves docs with lots of ultrasound experience, must be interpreted with a grain of salt. While there's hundreds of potential indications for ultrasound which can be overwhelming for the average ED doc, and we've all heard about weird and wonderful cases of some ultrasound guru saving lives with their ultrasound probe, in this episode, with the help of some of the biggest ultrasound gurus in Canada, 
will review and discuss the most important practicing changing indications, their pearls, pitfalls, and controversies in the context of this ultrasound revolution. Welcome, Dr. Hannum. Welcome, Dr. Hall. Welcome, Dr. Chenkin. And welcome, Dr. Fisher. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we're going to jump right into our first case here. Our first case is out of a 62-year-old female who rolls into your resuscitation room in respiratory distress. She has a known history of COPD and CHF. She's just barely able to speak in full sentences, and her main complaint is shortness of breath. She also admits to some vague chest discomfort. Her vital signs are a blood pressure of 165 on 90, a heart rate of 115, respiratory rate of 38, temp of 37, and a SAT of 92% on a non-rebreather. On exam, she appears to be a thin female with tachypnea and obvious respiratory distress. Her cardiac exam reveals tachycardia without murmurs or rubs and an elevated JVP. Her lung sounds are diminished throughout with a bit of scattered wheezing. She has trace edema to her lower extremities. Her ECG shows sinus tachycardia with no ST changes, but does show some evidence of right heart strain. She gets Ventolin, that's albuterol for the U.S. listeners, and Atrovent by mask. She gets IV steroids, IV antibiotics, IV Lasix, and a call to the RT is put in to initiate BiPAP. So let's just start off. Dr. Hall, what would be your differential at this point in this case? Well, obviously, pulmonary embolism is going to be up there. Um, we also have to consider a COPD exacerbation for various reasons, uh, pneumonia, congestive heart failure, pericardial effusion, uh, acute coronary syndrome, pneumothorax, other infectious etiologies, uh, myocarditis, things like that. Okay, so the, the differential is huge here. I mean, we know that patients with known COPD, when they come in with shortness of breath, that COPD is usually high on the differential, and same with CHF. If they've had a history of CHF and they come in with shortness of breath, that puts it way up at the, at the differential. So normally we try and sort this out with our usual history, physical exam, ECG, initially when we're assessing them in the emergency department, and often it's very difficult to come to a definitive diagnosis early on. So let's talk about how emergency ultrasound can help us sort out this differential. And uh, Dr. Hall, you had mentioned pericardial effusion is one of the differentials. So let's start off with pericardial effusion. Probably the simplest thing to do for emergency ultrasound of the heart is to look for a pericardial effusion. And if the patient is clinically in cardiac tamponade, then that can really help you out. This is a basic part of the FAST exam as well as part of most of the basic certification programs. Dr. Hannum, can you review for us the criteria for ruling in and out pericardial effusion, how emergency ultrasound changes the ED management of the shortness of breath patient, and any key pitfalls in, in assessing for a pericardial effusion? Sure. So looking for effusions, as you said, was one of the early indications for emergency or point-of-care ultrasound since the clinical findings of an effusion specifically are so nonspecific. Uh, a minority of patients with tamponade are going to have Beck's triad of hypotension, muffled heart sounds, and elevated JVP. So if you're going to wait for that, you're waiting for too long. And even if you do, the inter-observer reliability for JVP, for example, is really awful. So ultrasound clearly has a role. If someone is new to ultrasound, I'd start with the sub-xiphoid view. Landmarks are pretty straightforward, so it's really easy, easy to replicate, and it's 
you're not likely to get distracted by the other structures or shadows that you see. Pretty much the heart's the only thing which beats, and if there's a black or a hypoechoic area inside the pericardium, but outside of your heart, you've got your diagnosis. Unlike uh, most ultrasound studies in the literature, the sensitivity and specificity have been reported to be in the area of 96 and 98%, which is great. We can talk later about how reliable those numbers actually are, but I'm pretty confident that if you can actually see the heart and you compared clinical suspicion versus your ultrasound findings, there wouldn't be much of a contest. So to rule out an effusion using the sub-xiphoid approach, you need to have seen the pericardium along the right ventricle right to the apex of the heart. You need to sweep slowly, both anteriorly and posteriorly, through the whole heart. An effusion is going to be more prominent in the dependent areas of the heart, which is to say inferior and posterior. Some other teachers may well suggest using other views of the heart as well, say a parasternal or an apical view. These can certainly add to your confidence when you're diagnosing an effusion, although they can be a little bit tougher to teach, at least that's my, my own experience. And some pitfalls to be aware of. Uh, many people have an epicardial fat pad. It's usually the most prominent anteriorly. Uh, secondly, the presence of an effusion does not tell you whether the patient is actually in tamponade or not, just to be clear. Jonathan Tribino did a, a paper in 2009 which really drives this home. Again, there weren't really many findings other than the presence of an infusion to determine whether this person was actually in tamponade or not. Uh, Pulse's paradox of more than 10% was okay, but the, the other clinical findings were really nonspecific. So I would say if you've got clinical suspicion, a hypotensive patient, and an effusion, then I would either call for help, get an echo, or uh, if you're really worried, then just go ahead and do a needle. Another pitfall, the number three, would be a clotted blood it may tend to look more dense if it's more acute. And then if effusion has been there for a while, they can get some loculations as well. So you might have to look further around the heart. And as I said, finally, using other views are probably a good idea. But if you're going to use a parasternal view, for example, you just have to be aware that you're not mixing anything with a pleural effusion, for example. You just have to be able to distinguish a pericardial versus a pleural effusion. So those would be the big pitfalls. So just a quick review of the pearls and pitfalls when looking for a pericardial effusion. The fat pad is seen most prominently anteriorly underlying the importance of sweeping inferiorly and posteriorly where the pericardial effusion will be most prominent and the epicardial fat pad will disappear. Clotted blood will sometimes appear more dense and so less black, so you need to watch out for that as well. And with the parasternal view, it's important to distinguish between a pericardial effusion and a pleural effusion. The finding of a pericardial effusion has a wide differential in itself. And sometimes there can be some surprising causes, like, for example, in Dr. Steinhardt's best ever case of the patient who had an aortic dissection and tore proximally, causing a pericardial effusion. Remember that while pericardial effusion is a finding on ultrasound, it does not necessarily mean the patient is in cardiac tamponade. This is a clinical diagnosis, which should be suspected in a hypotensive patient with a pericardial effusion. However, Dr. Fisher is going to talk a little bit now about how there are some training programs that are using M-Mode to help make the diagnosis of cardiac tamponade on ultrasound to add to your clinical suspicion. I was just going to add, and probably something that will be a reoccurring theme, is that at different places, the skill level, because this is a disruptive technology, is changing pretty rapidly. And so there are teaching programs, and some listeners may be aware, where they're actually looking at tamponade using M-Mode. I think when we talk about pericardial tamponade in particular, it's very cool to see people that are growing up with ultrasound and the new set of applications they're using 
And this is one particular one where we had an intern diagnose tamponade using an M-mode technology that's usually reserved for cardiologists and echocardiologists, and it's become part of the curriculum. So I think this is just a great example to highlight that. Okay, so while pericardial effusion is pretty easy to diagnose with ultrasound, there's some more advanced skills that are coming down the tubes to diagnose cardiac tamponade. Yes. Uh, while we've normally been relying on our clinical exam plus the finding of an effusion, can you just go through us quickly what other findings you might find in cardiac tamponade on ultrasound? The one that I think people are most familiar with, and again, ultrasound is a piece of the puzzle, is right ventricular collapse. And this is during diastole. And so people are using M-mode in some patients where it's difficult to tell because often these patients are tachycardic. And they're using M-mode to use one of the valves, the mitral valve, to determine whether we're in diastole or systole. And then they're looking at that right ventricular wall. This is in the peristernal long view. And so something like this sounds pretty advanced, but pretty miraculous how quickly people can pick this skill up. And at least, as we said, as a piece of the puzzle, alert the cardiologist and act promptly. Okay. Yeah. The next step would be if you did find someone in tamponade, would be in most cases to attempt a tap if the patient's unstable. What has your experience been in terms of doing ultrasound-guided taps. One of the interesting things when you start with the learning the sub-xiphoid view of the heart is um, you realize how many structures are lie between your probe and the heart itself. And for me, when I was going through residency, I was trained to do a sub-diaphragmatic pericardiosynthesis when I was doing it blind. And you realize when you pull out the ultrasound probe that that needle is actually passing through things like the liver, the stomach, part of the lung before it gets into the pericardial space. Uh, so what ultrasound has done is uh, given us the advantage of localizing uh, a large pocket of fluid and inserting the needle uh, where you find the biggest pocket of fluid. And there was actually a large registry looking at where the biggest pocket of fluid was. And the actual best approach to getting a pericardiosynthesis is actually the, at the apical area. So 80% of patients had the largest pocket of fluid around the apex of the heart. And so I've actually changed my practice for pericardiosynthesis in that I don't do it blindly, first of all. I think in any situation, there's time to get the ultrasound out to make sure you know where your needle is going. And secondly, I try and uh, look for the biggest pocket of fluid. Often that ends up being uh, near the cardiac apex and then inserting the needle under real-time direct guidance, uh, watching the needle go into the pericardial space and making sure it's in the right spot before aspirating any fluid. And I think this greatly improves the success rate of the procedure as well as the safety for, for the patient. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to throw something in here. Going back a step, while there's certainly, we're getting better and better at looking at things like the echocardiographic features of tamponade, I think that we shouldn't forget we have the luxury of being next to the patient and being clinicians. And at no point should we go strictly on the ultrasound. And I think you talk to any experienced echosonographer, they'll tell you the same thing, that if the clini clinical picture doesn't fit, I'm going to I'm going to trust my instincts. So, so I think that you always have to consider the clinical situation when diagnosing tamponade. You can't eliminate it no matter how good you are at echo. Secondly, when it comes to doing pericardiosynthesis, I've done several. I've done them both ways. When we were first transitioning, just getting our skills in point-of-care ultrasound, people were very reluctant in my department to try the other way. And they said, no, I'm going to do it sub-xiphoid. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to help guide you there. And so we had a couple that were that way. And it's amazing when you think about how far you need lots to travel, there's a lot more chance for even with ultrasound guidance at kind of going out of line. And whereas with the uh, more of a thoracic approach, 
you have a sh far shorter distance to travel. And I demonstrate that to my colleagues. I go, look how far you have to travel with this needle. Maybe one centimeter will get you into that pocket mm -hmm. versus the other way where you got a big spinal needle. And I think that was what convinced some of them. And the other nice thing is it's, it's not just showing you where the deepest pocket is. What you also want to find is the window where there's nothing between your probe and the heart, like lung, that's going to get in the way. So that's the other advantage is I can see exactly where, what's going to be between my target and my needle. And so absolutely, I think that that's going to be the way to go. But I think that we were clinicians first and foremost with all these things. Absolutely. Trust in me. In all you do, have the faith I have in you. So one of the other diagnoses we need to consider in the patient with undifferentiated shortness of breath, besides pericardial effusion, is pneumothorax. Dr. Chenkin, part of the so-called extended fast involves looking for pneumothorax. The literature shows us that Emergency ultrasound is, has a really good sensitivity and specificity, 98, 99% for diagnosing pneumothorax, which is far better than chest x-ray, especially in the supine trauma patient. Ultrasound sounds fantastic in comparison, uh, but my question is, is it clinically significant? In other words, if you can't see a pneumothorax on x-ray, does it really matter that they have a, a pneumothorax on ultrasound or even on CT for that matter? So I think absolutely. Thoracic ultrasound for pneumothorax is probably one of the most useful applications for bedside ultrasound and absolutely has the potential to save lives. As you said, supine chest x-ray is a really horrible test for a pneumothorax. We routinely do it in all our trauma patients, but the literature suggests that the sensitivity for a pneumothorax on a supine chest x-ray is as low as 28%. And you can imagine if a patient is lying supine and the air is collecting anteriorly, it's not surprising that most of these will be occult to a chest x-ray. And even an upright chest x-ray, the sensitivity for pneumothorax has been reported to be as low as 82%. However, on an upright chest x-ray, it's, it's true that you're unlikely to miss a tension pneumothorax. So the bottom line is a normal x-ray does not exclude a pneumothorax, and a normal supine chest x-ray can actually miss a tension pneumothorax. So what, what does this matter to us? Well, first of all, in a patient who's very sick, who's hypotensive and crashing, first of all, a supine chest x-ray takes some time to obtain, and a bedside ultrasound is faster and it's more accurate. And in addition, it can help avoid empiric needle thoracostomies in a patient who would otherwise be getting them uh, to resuscitate them. I'm going to give you a case as an example that actually happened uh, not too long ago at the trauma center I work at. There was a multi-system trauma patient who was intubated for a head injury, and he had a chest x-ray and a pelvic x-ray before he left the emergency department that were read as normal. He subsequently went to the CT scanner to further delineate his injuries. He was immediately rushed back to the trauma room uh, five minutes later with CPR ongoing. He had suffered a PEA cardiac arrest while on the CT scanner. About 10 minutes into the resuscitation, he eventually got bilateral needle thoracostomies with a big rush of air and eventually got his pulse back. So how could we have prevented this situation? Well, if a bedside ultrasound had been performed initially before the patient left the department, we would have noted presence of bilateral pneumothoraces in this patient that were completely occult to the chest x-ray. And even though they may have been small initially, with the ongoing positive pressure ventilation that this patient was receiving, they very rapidly progressed to tension pneumothoraces. And so this is not uncommon, this type of scenario. Even small pneumothoraces in a patient who is receiving positive pressure ventilation are clinically significant. And I think in any patient with 
possible chest trauma, you should have a low threshold for performing this ultrasound. There are many other situations where I think detecting small pneumothoraces is clinically significant. Multi-system trauma patients are not infrequently assessed at small referral centers that don't have access to specialty backup and CT and end up undergoing air transport for further workup. And again, small pneumothoraces, when they're exposed to lower ambient pressures, can quickly develop into tension pneumothoraces. And this is something I would certainly want to know about before transporting a patient so that chest tubes uh, can be inserted prior to transport. So Dr. Chenkin, it sounds like there are many instances where looking for a pneumothorax with emergency ultrasound can be life-saving in the multi-trauma patient. What about, first of all, the patient who is stable, the trauma patient who's stable, and also in spontaneous pneumothoraces? What's the value there in terms of using emergency ultrasound for pneumothorax? So it's true that when you start using ultrasound to detect pneumothoraces, you're probably going to detect many small pneumothoraces that would appear on CT, but are probably clinically insignificant for the patient. Often these so-called occult pneumothoraces are simply observed and don't require any active treatment. However, it's still a useful piece of information to gather at the bedside. And by knowing that they do have a small pneumothorax, if they do deteriorate, you could perhaps be ready to act sooner in the future. In terms of spontaneous pneumothoraces, this is a equally valid in that population, although most of the studies have focused on traumatic pneumothoraces. I tend to use this procedure in low-risk patients who present after some mild chest trauma, perhaps so trivial that you, you wouldn't get a chest x-ray to begin with, but you just want to rule out a small pneumothorax. In those stable patients, if you do find a small pneumothorax, then you could proceed on to further testing and perhaps arrange follow-up scans for them as well. The ultrasound is also used for, useful for following pneumothoraces over time and gauging whether they're getting larger or smaller. Okay. So let's get into a little bit of the, the technical part of actually diagnosing pneumothorax on emergency ultrasound. Can you just tell us about some of the signs that would rule it in, some of the signs that would rule it out, and how to determine the size of the pneumothorax based on the ultrasound? Sure. So the, the rationale for chest ultrasound for pneumothorax is that when a patient is lying supine, any pleural air or any pneumothorax will collect in the anterior chest. So if you do an ultrasound of their anterior chest and you see normal lung touching the chest wall, you've effectively ruled out a pneumothorax. The way we do this is we use a, generally a high-frequency linear probe, and you want to place that probe on the most anterior part of their chest wall, usually in the midcovicular line. And you're holding your hand still and you're looking for signs of normal lung. And there's basically two main signs that we're looking for, and those are lung sliding and comet tails. And just in brief, lung sliding is, is when you see the parietal and visceral pleura sliding past each other as the patient breathes normally. This is sometimes referred to as ants marching on a string. If there was air in between the two layers of pleura, ultrasound can't see past air, so you wouldn't see that lung sliding. In terms of comet tails, these are bright white beams of light that start at the pleura and go to the bottom of the ultrasound screen. And they are caused by water droplets in the interlobular septae that come from the visceral pleura. So if you have a pneumothorax, you won't see the visceral pleura at the pleural line, and therefore you won't see comet tails. So the presence of sliding lung or comet tails basically indicates you have normal lung in the anterior chest and rules out the presence of a pneumothorax. If you don't see signs of a normal lung in the anterior chest, then there may be a pneumothorax. Now it's time to go and see if you can confirm that. And the way we do that is by looking for something called the lung point. And the lung point is the point where the parietal and visceral pleura are separating at the exact point of the pneumothorax. 
So you will see intermittent lung sliding as the patient breathes. The way you do this is basically move your probe laterally on the chest until you find that lung point. And if you do see it, it's 100% specific for a pneumothorax and helps to rule in the diagnosis. In terms of measuring the size of the pneumothorax, uh, there was a study in 2005 that compared an emergency physician's estimate of the size of the pneumothorax using ultrasound to the findings on CT scan. And they found that if the, there was no lung sliding at the anterior axillary line, they considered a small pneumothorax. If there was no lung sliding at the mid-axillary line, they considered a medium pneumothorax. And if there was no lung sliding at the posterior axillary line, it was considered a large pneumothorax. They found that this study had a 95% agreement between ultrasound and CT estimate for size. Uh, the only discrepancies between the two rankings was in the moderate size pneumothoraces, so there were no large discrepancies between the size estimates. So this can be another useful piece of information. If you do find a pneumothorax, you can help to decide if this is a, a small, moderate, or large size pneumothorax, and that can be another piece of clinical information that can help guide your management. In this case, we have a patient with known COPD, and they can often have blebs, and they are at higher risk for pneumothorax just at a baseline compared to the general population. Is it more difficult in a patient with COPD and do you, can you get mixed up with blebs? Is that one of the false positives? Absolutely, actually. I had a patient yesterday who came in in a respiratory arrest and known history of severe asthma. And the intubation was very difficult. We had a lot of difficulty bagging the patient and we were quite concerned about whether this patient actually had a pneumothorax or not. And when we put the probe on the patient, um, we did not see any lung sliding at all. However, we did see comet tails. So this told us that there are still no signs of pneumothorax there, but it's one of the potential false positives when you're doing lung ultrasound is that in some conditions you won't see lung sliding. So uh, severe asthma or airway obstruction is one condition. There are other ones to be aware of, such as COPD, lung fibrosis, pulmonary contusions, bullous disease, as well as uh, mainstem intubation. Uh, you won't see lung sliding in the opposite lung. I think the proviso is to remember these are all data points we're gathering and you're putting them all together and we need to move away from the mentality of here's a diagnostic test that gives us the complete answer. This is a bedside test that gives us a data point that we're going to incorporate with the rest of our exam. And so you have a patient that's known to have blebs, you have a patient who has all these other issues, then I'm going to incorporate my data point accordingly and not just run and grab a needle. Uh, Dr. Fisher, did you have any comments about how you might use emergency ultrasound to detect pneumothorax in the pediatric population? Sure. There's a few clinical settings where you can use ultrasound pretty effectively to rule out, again, low probability pneumothorax. I think if we identify a rib fracture, we can use ultrasound not only to find the rib fracture, do a hematoma block, but to make sure that there's no pneumo there. The same with clavicle fracture. If we're placing a central line, we can also use ultrasound to make sure there's no pneumothorax when we're done. And so I think there's lots of utility, and I think that's also why you see the pneumothorax focus scan part of the FAST now is eFAST. And so there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, one more comment. Let's not lose track of the fact that the majority of our scans are going to be negative, and that's, that's powerful in our clinical decision-making. So, example, patient came in stabbed in the right flank that I saw and came in with SATs in the 80s, blood pressure 80, protecting that side. I think and I couldn't hear good air sounds. I don't think anyone would be faulted for putting in a needle thinking that's attention pneumothorax. My machine was right there. I was so confident it was a pneumothorax. I told my medical student, get ready, here's your chance to do your first chest tube. I applied the probe and I went, wow, the lung's completely inflated. There's nothing here whatsoever. And it turned out 
I didn't put the, you know, I, I, I went with it. I was very confident in the scan. And it turned out that this patient had a subdiaphragmatic hematoma from a liver laceration, which was causing the hypotension. They were, it was hurting so much to take a deep breath that they were getting a bit hypoxic. And so I saved them getting a empiric chest tube, which would have not helped their subdiaphragmatic hematoma one bit. So the negative scan can be very useful as well. And, and certainly in our lower risk patients, but even some of our higher risk patients where it at least makes us pause and get a confirmatory test rather than going for that empiric needle. And make sure the intubated patient that when you're looking for lung slide, someone's bagging the patient because that can be a little embarrassing if you call the pneumothorax because there's no breath being delivered. Okay, so that's how we can use emergency ultrasound to detect pneumothorax. We've talked about pleural effusion. We've talked about pneumothorax. Let's move on to pulmonary edema. This patient has a history of CHF. In episode four with Dr. Latovsky and Dr. Steinhardt, we discussed the challenges of diagnosing CHF in the setting of COPD because many of the clinical features overlap and that diuracing a patient with COPD who might have pneumonia without CHF can worsen their renal function and worsen their outcomes. So it's really important to get the right diagnosis early on in their ED visit. Do you think emergency ultrasound plays a role in helping sort out these patients who you're not sure if it's COPD or CHF in terms of detecting pulmonary edema? Absolutely. I think it can help. Um, I don't think it's a panacea. There's not one simple yes, no answer here. I think it's a collection of data points that are going to answer your question. So we can use the emergency ultrasound to look at the pump. We can look at the heart and how well the ventricle is contracting. We can look at the lungs to see are there signs of fluid building up there. But remember, this is, again, it's a, a case of adding up a bunch of data points. You can look at the volume status as well, see if there's signs of right-sided failure. But you cannot look at any one thing in isolation. Uh, there's not one thing you can hang your hat on here, but it definitely can help you. And there's certainly studies showing that things like pulmonary edema can be detected significantly earlier with bedside ultrasound than with plain film x-ray. And it's certainly more sensitive and specific for pleural effusions, which can play a role here. I would agree with Dr. Hall 100%. I like the idea of the triple scan, where when these patients present, you're looking at the lungs, the heart, the IVC, whether it's pediatric or whether it's adult. And I think you, you do, you gain a lot of valuable information and more pieces to the puzzle. What's a more difficult case is the patient who's a bit hypotensive and you suspect failure, but do they actually need a bit more volume in the tank or do they need inotropes? Or, and that's where it can be actually useful. So look, is that, is that heart really empty and working like crazy or boy, oh boy, it's, it's just twitching a little bit there. And I, I find that, that part extremely useful. However, with the multiple faces of congestive heart failure, we know that, especially in the elderly, almost half of them have diastolic dysfunction rather than strictly systolic dysfunction. So those patients, to diagnose them with ultrasound, takes a, it's far more than what a simple bedside test can do. There's a lot of parameters in advance echocardiographic measurements that need to be done. So, and absolutely, this is not a panacea by any means. And we can't just say congestive heart failure is a single entity and ultrasound is going to help us solve it, all of them. No, it's going to help us. Where it's very useful is ruling out a lot of things, first of all, so that we can narrow our differential down. And in some of those patients where we're not quite sure which treatment to give, it might lean, help us go, head down the right path in the early going. So we've talked about pericardial effusion, pneumothorax, and pulmonary edema. Let's continue with the case. You're called to the bedside by the nurse because the patient's blood pressure is now 80 on 40, and she's desatting on BiPAP. She now appears very drowsy, and you notice that her jugs are through the roof. A venous blood gas comes back, showing a mixed metabolic and respiratory acidosis. She's intubated, given a fluid bolus with no response, and then started on Levofed. 
a slick ultrasound geek colleague of yours asks you if you'd like them to do a quick rush exam, and even though you don't know much about it, you agree. Before we talk about the rush exam, I just want to give a little review background on the four types of shock. So here we have a patient who is in shock with a blood pressure of 80 on 40. And when you're faced with a patient in shock, there's really four types of shock you should be thinking about. The first is hypovolemic, like you'd have in a severe bleed or a severe dehydration. Distributive shock, like in sepsis or anaphylaxis. Cardiogenic shock like you'd have with an MI or cardiomyopathy or acute valvular failure. And lastly, obstructive shock, which would be things like cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and massive PE. Now, the clinical findings of these four types of shock have a lot of overlap. For example, you'll see raised JVP and shortness of breath and tamponade and PE and CHF. And even in severe sepsis with end organ damage, you can see a raised JVP as the heart begins to fail. So without getting into the specifics, we'll talk about the specifics a bit later. How does emergency ultrasound help you sort out whether this patient in shock might be caused by other things like hypovolemia or sepsis or PE? If we think about it, we're looking at the tank and the, and the, the tubes leading to the tank. Ultrasound can give us an idea of how full the tank is, which give you an idea if you're dealing with a hypovolemic shock or not by looking at the IVC as a surrogate. It can look at how well the pump's working, so we give us an idea if we're dealing with a cardiogenic cause by looking at things like LV function and how much the ventricles are filling, and we can get a nice idea if this is obstructive shock by seeing is there a pericardial fusion, is there a tension pneumothorax, are there signs of RV dilation that go along with PE. So it's helping us go down which of those pathways, which of those types of shock there is. Yeah, I understand there was a study about eight years ago that looked at the effects of early goal-directed ultrasound for emergency department patients with hypotension, and it did show a reduction in the number of conditions that needed to be ruled out, as well as a quicker time to final diagnosis. So let's talk a little bit about this RUSH protocol or ACEs protocol. There are two different protocols uh, that have been developed, one in the States and one in England, that have tried to protocolize how to use emergency department ultrasound to help sort out the patient in shock, what these protocols consist of, and how they can help us out. Sure. So I, I'd just like to start by saying that the, the RUSH and ACES protocols, they're really designed for the patients in undifferentiated shock. And that's, they're really designed to give you sort of a protocol of how to consolidate all the different techniques that you may be able to use with ultrasound in order to help rule in and rule out diagnosis, as well as come up with an initial treatment patient for the patient. The Russian ACES protocols are very similar in that they give you a step-by-step -step algorithm of how to look for different causes of shock. They all incorporate very similar steps. Um, the RUSH protocol starts with looking at the pump. So here you're going to be looking at the heart, and you're mainly looking for three things. First, you're looking for signs of a pericardial effusion, which would make you suspect cardiac tamponade. Secondly, you're looking for the contractility of the left ventricle to decide if it's hypercontractile versus hypocontractile. 
And lastly, you're looking at the relative sizes of the left ventricle and right ventricle to help you decide whether there might be signs of acute right heart strain, which may lead you towards the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. The pump is set as the first step uh, because it helps you guide your initial treatment. If you see that the heart is beating vigorously and looks empty, then you probably want to be starting with aggressive fluid resuscitation. Whereas if there are uh, signs of poor LV function, then you may be leading more towards uh, getting inotropic suppressors early on. The second step of the, the rush protocol is looking at the tank, and this is an assessment of the patient's intravascular volume. And the main thing you're going to be looking at here is the IVC, and you're looking to see if there are signs of decreased intravascular volume based on your findings on the IVC. You're also looking for signs of what they call tank compromise, where there's impairment of venous return back to the heart. And for this, you're going to go up to the chest and look for a, any signs of a pneumothorax. Finally, the last step in the rush protocol is looking at the pipes. And this involves looking at both the major arteries and veins. So for the arteries, you're going to be doing your abdominal aorta scan, looking for any signs of a AAA, or sometimes you might actually see a dissection flap. And the last step would be to look at the deep veins of the leg to look for any signs of a DVT, which would again raise your suspicion for a, a big pulmonary embolism causing a shock in this patient. So there is a mnemonic that's been published to help you remember the order of all these scans that you can do. If you like mnemonics, it's called HIMAP. So H stands for heart, I is for IVC, M is for Morrison's pouch, which also includes the other parts of the FAST exam. A is for the aorta scan, and P is for the pneumothorax scan. All the particular findings on rush exam for the different kinds of shock will be listed in a table in the written summary. This rush exam for me personally seems pretty complicated. I'm certified in my basic ultrasound, but I'm far from good enough at ultrasound myself to perform a rush exam that I'd hang my hat on. Dr. Hannum, how difficult is it to learn the rush or the ACEs exam and how do you see this evolving over time in terms of becoming a standard for an emergency doctor to know? So uh, two minutes has been quoted as the time it takes to do this particular set of exams, I guess, when bundled together. Uh, I think that's, that's the holy grail. I think that's certainly possible. I don't think it's realistic for most of us at this point. It depends on the patient that you're examining. If they're a, a really large patient, uh, an extremis who's covered in sweat and not able to lie still, I don't think you're going to do this in two minutes, that's for sure. It also assumes that the, per, that the examiner, the physician, is interested in learning this stuff, that you have some skills that you're willing to put in the time to do it. I think it's very realistic for us to interpret these images really quickly. If we imagine it like ECGs, where someone just flashed these pictures on the screen of, this is what the aorta looks like, this is what the IVC looks like, can you therefore incorporate these and make a decision? I think all of us could do that quite quickly. I think what's going to trip us up is acquiring those images, much like the rest of ultrasound exams. I see this as something which may well be the standard of care in the future. Uh, I think for now, it's something which we should all aspire to, but uh, I'm not sure that it's ready for prime time just yet. I wanted to talk a little bit more about PE and emergency ultrasound because I find that really intriguing. And what we have now without ultrasound for PE is a very difficult diagnosis with a huge range of clinical presentations with many data points, none of which 
can we can really hang our hat on until we get definitive imaging. I want to talk a little bit about how emergency ultrasound might be able to help us out with PE. While we know that it's not the panacea, that it won't rule it in, there are particular situations where it actually can be life-saving in a really sick patient with PE. You know, just last month, we had a young woman who was on birth control pill, who was otherwise healthy, who had recently been on a plane from Hong Kong. She came in with the triage note saying the chief complaint was seizure. She came in and she was in shock and she was diagnosed with a PE by CT, which took a couple of hours to sort out. She was then thrombolized and she did really well. How can emergency ultrasound help us in cases like this when we're considering the diagnosis of PE? First of all, I think actually you should be treating it more as a help rule in test. There's no way that this is sensitive enough as a rule out test. Uh, there just isn't. So, I, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast and hoping that we had the answer for them for PE is going to be sadly disappointed. It's not going to do that. It's nowhere near sensitive enough, but it can help us in some of our critically ill patients. So by looking uh, at the heart using specifically the apical four chamber view, if you compare the size of the right ventricle to the left ventricle, and the right ventricle basically looks as big or bigger than the left ventricle, think about RV failure and think about conditions like PE that could have triggered it. And certainly the early diagnosis can be useful in terms of deciding to start thrombolytics for a, a massive PE. But I think a lot of the use is actually going to be more in the case of ruling out other etiologies as well. So I think that these patients, they often are undifferentiated, and sometimes you'll find another reason or you'll rule out another reason and help narrow it down. The other thing that I think it's going to be useful for is helping us risk stratify some of our pulmonary emboli. So there are certainly several studies showing that patients that have demonstrated RV dilation or RV failure with PE are much higher risk uh, and their mortality rate's huge. These are the patients who should not be treated as outpatient PE patients. They should be probably in hospital. So being able to decide those patients who, they look good enough to go home, but you do a quick look at their heart and say, whoa, this doesn't look good. That's a patient I'm going to say, no, I think you're going to stay in for inpatient therapy initially because you're the patient who is a good risk of dropping dead and coming back to my VSA clinic. So that's where I see it being helpful. It's a bit of a risk stratifier and helpful in those critically ill patients where we see evidence of a massive PE. Now, in terms of, you had mentioned massive PE and submassive PE, there's just actually pretty recently the new AHA guidelines on the management of PE came out, and there's very little controversy about thrombolysis for massive PE. That is PE that's significant enough to cause shock. But there is controversy on submassive PE. And submassive PE is defined as those that do not cause hypotension, but do have evidence of RV dysfunction on ultrasound, ECG, or an elevated troponin or BNP. The reason that there's some of this controversy is because the bleeding risk probably outweighs the minimal potential benefit for thrombolysis for these submassive PEs. There's a variety of emergency ultrasound measurements and things we can do to see how the right ventricle is doing. Do you think in this controversial group where they're not quite in shock, but they have what looks like a bad PE, do you think that the ultrasound can help us out in deciding whether or not to thrombolize? I think that when you see these patients and you're at the bedside and you have the skill set to acquire the images you need, being more of a qualitative person than a quantitative person, I think that if you're looking and you see that that apex is still moving on the right ventricle and the wall is solid, so McConnell sign, I think you should be pretty concerned. 
And I think that you should at least have thrombolytics brought up to the bedside because this is potentially a patient that could end up going into shock. And if they do go into shock, you're prepared and you're not waiting around to perform that treatment. So that's kind of one approach. So back to our patient, the patient had a substernal view of the heart, which was the first thing that this emergency guru ultrasound guy did for as part of his rush exam. And lo and behold, there was an obvious huge pericardial effusion. An ultrasounded guided pericardiocentesis was done and the patient's vitals quickly improved. So in this case, while COPD and CAHF may have been contributing to the patient's clinical condition, it was the cardiac tamponade that caused her to go into shock. And this is often difficult to pick up clinically until it's, it's much later in the, in the clinical course and maybe too late. Although the rush exam is a bit complicated to learn, assessing for pericardial effusion is very simple and can be life-saving. Dr. Chenkin, up until now, we've talked about emergency ultrasound of the heart with particular attention, looking at pericardial effusion, we talked about PE. So to finish off the cardiac discussion, is there anything else that can be useful for us at the bedside? Yeah, I think learning to differentiate a hypodynamic and a hyperdynamic left ventricle can be one of the most useful pieces of information that you can gather when you're resuscitating a patient in shock. When you see a hyperdynamic ventricle in a non-traumatic patient with shock, this has been found to be 94% specific for sepsis as a final diagnosis. So this can really help guide your management, uh, initiate early goal-directed therapy, which includes aggressive volume resuscitation early on, and without worrying about having to volume overload that patient. And it really helps you hone in on a diagnosis sooner and initiate the right treatment earlier. And when you say hyperdynamic left ventricle, what would you be seeing on the ultrasound? So there's different definitions of what's considered normal versus hyperdynamic. Uh, Generally, if you see a a small ventricle with greater than 70% change in the diameter during systole, or if the walls actually are touching each other, Again, this would lead you to believe that the uh, left ventricle is hyperdynamic. And usually this is just a uh, qualitative estimate. Just by visualizing the left ventricle, you're not actually measuring anything. You can just eyeball it and just say, hey, the left ventricle is beating furiously, and this patient needs volume, and usually that's the, the right first step. Great. So while ED docs shouldn't be expected to identify regional wall abnormalities and be able to come up with ejection fractions, they should be able to tell the difference between a normal left ventricle and a severely depressed or severely hyperdynamic left ventricle, which can help in the differential diagnosis. Just before we move away from the rush exam, Dr. Hall, I just wanted to clarify the rationale for using the IVC diameter to guide intravascular volume status, and in practical terms, how we can use this in our patient in shock. Sure. So I like to think of the IVC is the hose leading back to the pump. And if you think of the fire hose and when it doesn't have much water in it, how it collapses because of gravity, that's kind of the same idea with the IVC. So what you're looking at is the anterior posterior diameter of the IVC. Uh, when you, you image the IVC in its long axis or longitudinal plane. And if that we're basically looking at how big it is and how much it changes with the respiratory cycle. And we have to remember it's just a surrogate for volume status. And there's lots of complicating factors here. So the things that we tend to look at are measuring absolute diameter and then change in size with respiration. There are, of course, other ways of estimating it, such as using comparisons with uh, aortic diameter. 
probably the ones that are most commonly used are to say, is this a very flat looking IVC? And in the adult, we're talking probably less than a centimeter in AP diameter, or is it a very full looking IVC with a diameter over two centimeters? Between those two is where we get into a bit of a gray area. Then we want to look at how much does it change with inspiration. And in the spontaneously breathing, non-intubated patient, then we expect that it will collapse with inspiration. And the more hypotensive the patient is, the greater the change you're going to see. An IVC that doesn't change at all with respiration makes pure hypovolemia a lot less likely. And you can use this as well for the patient who is intubated, but of course it's gonna be the other way around now that because they're getting positive pressure ventilation, you will see the IVC increase in diameter with mechanical inspiration. And so what you wanna look at is the percent and change between the expiratory phase and inspiratory phase. And there are lots of different formulas for calculating this, but I think from an eyeball perspective, if you're seeing no significant change whatsoever during the ventilatory cycle with the intubated patient, then again, you're gonna think it's less likely a pure hypovolemic problem. Just to remember too that this is again, this is a surrogate marker and there are things that can give you, uh, you know, falsely collapsed or falsely enlarged IVC. So an example, a patient with a lot of ascites who could be in failure, they may not show much variability in their IVC because it just can't fill up because of all the ascites compressing it. So again, I, I like to stress with all these exams, this is a data point that you have to incorporate into the rest of the clinical scenario. So Dr. Chenkin, just putting this all together in the patient who presents with shock, can you just give us a quick review of how emergency ultrasound can help us? Sure. So the, the basic three-step protocol that you're going to go through is first to look at the pump, the pump, which is the heart, looking for signs of pericardial effusion, looking for the overall LV contractility, and the relative size of the right ventricle and left ventricle. Next, you're going to go on and look at the tank, which basically involves doing an assessment of the IBC uh, collapsibility and size to see what their intravascular volume is like. And then finally, you're going to look at the pipes, looking for any signs of aortic aneurysm or dissection, as well as DVTs in the deep veins in the legs. And then putting all those pieces together should help guide your initial treatment and point you towards the cause of shock in this patient. So Dr. Fisher, with all this talk about volume status, it leads me to wonder in kids that we're always talking about volume status in pediatric patients who are dehydrated, are they dehydrated, are they not? And it's very hard to tell clinically. How can emergency ultrasound help us determine the hydration status in the pediatric population? Right, so now we're talking about little pumps, little pipes, and there's been a lot of work done in this area and I think it's rapidly evolving. So the key with pediatrics is that this is usually an allometric measurement. So you're comparing the IVC to the aorta. And some of that work was done by Lee Chen and Koziak in like 2008. And they found that a normal ratio was like 1.2. And then anytime someone seemed to be dehydrated, it was kind of two standard deviations below that. And that's kind of a lot of math, but it's helpful math. And then some studies have gone on since to show that we can use IBC to aortic ratio to determine severe dehydration. But once we get in that kind of classic North American setting of do I put in an IV or do I give PO fluid, things get a little trickier. And so I think in under-resourced medical settings where you're worried about your resource allocation, you're trying to prognosticate, I think ultrasound has a real role. Here with Western medicine, I think it's still a little bit unclear how much it's going to help us. 
And so I think we're, you know, the jury's still out on whether or not we can put this into practice. I think what we observe, though, is it gives us a potential endpoint or a goal when we rehydrate. So if we do put an IV into a child and we feel like they need to be rehydrated, you know, how do we know when we're done? To think that we're going to feel a liver border is, I think, probably on a busy Saturday night, a little bit beyond most of us. And so I think ultrasound can help us get a sense of whether or not the patient's fluid status is normal or they're euvolemic, at least before we take that IV out. I think in the setting of shock that we talked about before, it applies perfectly. In the classic hypovolemic shock that we see in pediatrics, you know, we need to prime the pump before we start the inotropes. And I think a lot of our protocols that we've grown up with have, again, relied on liver edge and not really seeing what's going on. And the magic of ultrasound is now we have this real-time tool to visualize the anatomy and it can guide our therapy. So I think there's a lot of potential there. One other little thing when we talk about hydration that's uh, pretty innovative and I think kind of a little stroke of genius, the idea of using ultrasound for IO confirmation. And we're seeing more and more of that in pediatric patients that are dehydrated. And often these IOs are put on in the field and they come in and we're wondering whether they're functioning or not. And we're hesitant to put in a second one if we know this one's working. And it's a really slick technique to put the linear probe, uh, high resolution probe, high frequency probe, just by that IO, give it a little infusion and see the color change beneath the cortex and know that the IO is in place. So two great applications for pediatrics. Yeah, I've been in a couple situations with kids that are crashing and we stick in one IO, we hook a line up to it and is it running well? Well, I'm not really sure. And then you stick in another IO and then that one seems to be running well, but now is the first one not running well. And you, you, you end up spending so much of your time and energy trying to sort out whether your IOs are actually functioning well in the right spot or not, you know, especially in the really little ones. I find that's that's still challenging, even though we, we have those drills now that make it a lot easier. So yeah, that sounds like something I'm going to learn. And I think it's, it's great to point out that I think this application highlights that we can come up with ED-specific applications for ultrasound. Most of what the applications that we apply now are translated from other specialties. And this is a great example of identifying a problem and using ultrasound to solve it. And so I think we're going to be in an exciting period as we build up our operator base of real innovation. All right. So let's go back to the case. The patient who's now had the pericardiocentesis is admitted by the intensivist. But as there's no beds in the ICU, the patient remains in the ED. The next morning, the patient suddenly has a PEA arrest in the emergency department. He's resuscitated for 20 minutes with no return of spontaneous circulation. The nurse asks you when you're going to stop the resuscitation and call the code. Dr. Chenkin, when it comes to using ultrasound for ceasing resuscitation, what are the criteria that we should be using to stop resuscitation for cardiac arrest? So I was very excited when I picked up my uh, AHA 2010 guidelines uh, this past fall and saw that ultrasound, bedside ultrasound is actually included in the guidelines. It's important to note that there are no absolute criteria on ultrasound to terminating resuscitation, but it is a really useful piece of information that you can incorporate into uh, your resuscitation to help you decide, along with other factors, when is the appropriate time to terminate your resuscitation. There's two ways that I think ultrasound can be very helpful in cardiac arrest. The first 
is in the early phases of a cardiac arrest where you're aggressively resuscitating the patient. And you remember back to taking ACLS and you've got all these H's and T's as the common causes of PA arrest. And often we're left to either treating empirically or not really treating any because it's very difficult to do any diagnostic tests during a cardiac arrest. I find that pulling out the ultrasound early on and looking for some common causes of PEA arrest can be very helpful. We've already talked about a lot of them, for example, looking for pericardial tamponade, for pneumothorax, for a aortic aneurysm, for signs of a PE, and for whether the patient needs volume resuscitation or not. So this can certainly help you early on in a, in a cardiac arrest to guide your initial treatment. Later on, once the patient has been gone through their ACLS algorithm, Again, I find the use of ultrasound to be extremely helpful. Personally, how I use it is when I've gone through the ACLS algorithm, we have not found any reversible causes or we've treated empirically for anything that we suspected. I usually pull out the ultrasound and have a look at the heart. And if there is cardiac standstill, this is one more piece of information that tells me this patient is pretty unlikely to survive this cardiac arrest. It's not only helpful to me personally as the person running the code, but I think it's very helpful for the other team members in the room, especially those who are trainees or inexperienced with cardiac arrest, to see that the heart is not beating and that there's very little else that we can do to, to help this patient. In addition, um, there's a big push to having family members inside the room during resuscitations. And I think having shown this image to family members in the past, I think it can be helpful for them to realize that the heart's not beating and they've done everything they could for this patient and there's no way to get that heart beating again. Of course, there are always exceptions. When you're using ultrasound in a cardiac arrest, there are many conditions that conceivably would have a cardiac standstill that would be reversible. The classic example of this would be a hypoxic arrest in pediatrics where they become very bradycardic. There are other conditions such as hypothermic arrest or toxic overdoses where you do need to fully treat the underlying cause before you could terminate the resuscitation. However, if you use this as an extra piece of information that helps you, I think it can be quite helpful in deciding when to terminate your resuscitation. The AHA 2010 guidelines make a statement about it, and the, the statement is that echocardiography may be considered to diagnose treatable causes of cardiac arrest and to guide treatment decisions. And they give this a class 2B recommendation, which basically means it may be considered. It's not yet standard practice or standard of care. Um, but I think many of us who practice in emergency medicine are starting to incorporate this into our end-of-life decision-making. The evidence, just briefly behind this, shows that the survival if you have cardiac standstill on your bedside ultrasound is much less than 1% and is probably approaching zero. So again, this can be quite helpful in determining when to end your resuscitation. Just a practical point on that. I Just from my own experience, I've been very surprised at how the heart can look like it's almost standing still and then the person comes back. So just to reinforce that when we talk about cardiac standstill, it's absolutely standing still. It's not sort of waving a little bit. It's not, it's actually zero activity, just to be crystal clear on that. The, the other thing that's useful in resuscitation, I don't know how many, the rest of you are doing this, is it, it gives you a better idea of the rhythm. Uh, so, you know, we have that classic conundrum of the, the SVT with aberrancy versus the VTAC arrest. And, I mean, you look at the heart and you can see what the ventricle is doing. And you can see, is this, which rhythm is it? Should I be using electricity or not? I mean, that what I'm finding out more and more is I'm actually seeing, I'm getting a better idea of what the rhythm is to match what I'm seeing on the monitor. And it helps me in my decision making as well.
the other kind of peri arrest scenario is, especially in pediatrics, is sometimes we don't do such a good job of feeling the pulse. And so I think definitely getting full visualization of what's going on in the heart is important. And I know there are people beginning to advocate for ongoing visualization of that heart throughout the code. Dr. Chenkin, you had mentioned the ACLS guidelines on emergency medicine cases with Stephen Brooks and Michael Feldman. We did an update on the, the newest guidelines and the guidelines go on and on and on. And we emphasized again and again and again the importance of continuous chest compressions during your resuscitation of someone with cardiac arrest. Now, just logically, it's very difficult to do continuous chest compressions and use your ultrasound at the same time. And that's what a lot of ultrasound naysayers will say is that ultrasound has no role in cardiac arrest because it can interfere with the more important thing of doing chest compressions. Can you give us some tips on how, practically speaking, to incorporate the, the ultrasound into our resuscitation so that we can maximize chest compressions? I completely agree that uh, the priority during any cardiac arrest is chest compressions. And uh, there's never really a good situation where you would stop chest compressions to perform an ultrasound. You would never want to interrupt your CPR for, for performing an ultrasound. However, um, the good news is that you don't really need to. When I'm doing this, I'm going to have the probe ready to go, usually in the sub-xiphoid position, so you're out of the way of the person who's doing ch chest compressions. You want to set up your ultrasound machine so you set your depth and your gain and have the image all ready to go. And at the two-minute intervals where the compressions are halting for rhythm and pulse check is when you're going to go ahead and have a look at cardiac activity. And really, this only takes a few seconds and generally takes about 10 seconds or so for the, the pulse check and rhythm check. And during that time, you're going to have a look at the heart. That way, you don't interfere with the resuscitation at all. And there are studies that have looked at this who have surveyed physicians, and physicians generally feel that bedside ultrasound does not interfere with resuscitation. And in one study, 96% 96% said that it provided useful information about the resuscitation that helped to guide ongoing management. So I think it is a useful adjunct, but as you said, it certainly cannot take priority over the primary resuscitation of the patients, which include good chest compressions and defibrillation. Yeah, I mean, this got me thinking that, you know, in emergency medicine, we're often have to take on this kind of cowboy role as you know, there's a cardiac arrest and the doc goes in and, oh, yeah, I can handle all of this, no problem. But uh, more and more, I'm thinking that every cardiac arrest in the ED should have two emergency doctors. And a lot of hospitals, that's not possible. But in hospitals where there are more than one emergency doctor on at once, it makes sense to me because it would be very difficult for one doctor to be running the code and doing the ultrasound, which can give us, some, as you explained, some valuable information. Whenever I'm presented with a patient with a cardiac arrest, I don't need to be the cowboy. I call for another emergency doctor as soon as the cardiac arrest happens, not just for being able to do all the procedural things that you need to do, but also just to have another brain there to think of alternatives. I'll mention, throw in, I mean, working in a community hospital where I'm sometimes the only doctor in the hospital at night. Frankly, during codes, I'm spending most of my time just directing other people. I'm at the end of the bed watching what's happening. I mean, once the, the tube's in, usually I'm not doing a whole lot of hands-on. And uh, I'm watching what everyone else is doing and directing them. So I think that it does give me opportunity to uh, have the probe. And like uh, Dr. Schenken said, be ready for it. So when there's a changeover in the people doing the CPR, or doing your pulse check, I'm in there like a flash. 
Though in some cases I find I actually with a cardiac probe, I can see what they're doing during chest compressions. With a sub-xiphoid view, you can actually get an idea of how good their compressions are and what's happening with the heart. Not always, but sometimes uh, without interfering with the CPR. But uh, I think it's quite possible even as a single physician, though I'm certainly in total agreement, the more hands on deck, the better. If there's someone else there, certainly bring them in. But I don't think that being a lone doctor precludes you from making use of your bedside ultrasound in these situations. Okay. You had mentioned intubation. That brings up the question. I've heard there was a recent study that was using emergency ultrasound to confirm tube placement. I mean, right now, the gold standard for tube placement is quantitative waveform capnography is the most reliable method to confirm tube placement. Would any of you recommend emergency ultrasound to confirm endotracheal tube placement? I think the currently accepted gold standard is quantitative capnography, which is available, I think, at most centers, uh, at least large centers now. The problem, I guess, would be in centers where that's not available, what is the surrogate gold standard for confirming your tube placement? There have been several studies now that have attempted to validate the use of ultrasound for confirming endotracheal tube placement. I see these studies right now as sort of interesting and maybe hypothesis generating, but certainly they don't have enough data behind them at this point to, to be ready for prime time. The TRUE study, which is the, the latest one standing for tracheal rapid ultrasound exam, had very impressive numbers when you look at their, their bottom line, that their sensitivity and specificity were quite high. But when you actually look at the study, there were really only two residents doing all these scans, and their confidence intervals suggest that up to 27% of missed esophageal intubations might actually be happening. So the, there really isn't the data yet to support this as replacing or being a surrogate for the gold standard of quantitative capnography, but it's still quite an interesting new application for ultrasound and may have a role in situations where you find that the capnography might not be accurate. For example, in patients where there's airway obstruction or equipment failure and you're still suspicious the tube might be in the right spot, this may have a very limited role but at this point, I don't think it's quite ready for prime time. I'll make one more mention for airway concerns, though. That patient where you're considering a surgical airway, you've now got something that helps you find the target in that big bull neck you know, where you're you know, blindly cutting down. Now we can actually find the cricoid cartilage. And uh, um, I think there's, there's a, I believe, a couple of studies underway in the States that are looking at that as an, uh, an assistance to, uh, to that nightmare airway which I think might prove interesting. Cool. I was going to say that I didn't think there were any obese people in Brantford, Ontario. <laughs> I think we, Ontario serve, we serve a certain population that has a large number of <laughs> obese people. One area where I do find emergency ultrasound very useful after intubation is if you're worried about a mainstem intubation. Going back to when we were talking about pneumothorax, if you only see lung sliding on the right side after intubation and not on the left side, you can be pretty confident that your tube is in the right mainstem bronchus and uh, you can try and pull back on that tube until you see lung sliding on both sides. And that's again, it's an indirect method, but it's still quite useful to confirm tube placement and that you have the tube in the right spot. Just make sure someone's bagging the patient when you do that test. <laughs> Let's move on to another case. This is a short case. A family physician sends a 65-year-old female into the ED at 5 p.m. on a Friday afternoon to rule out an uncomplicated DVT. 
The ultrasound department closes at 4 p.m., and you may not be able to get a scan for one, two, or even three days. The emergency physician who just completed his advanced ultrasound course does a bedside ultrasound that's negative for DVT. So there's a wide variety of practice when it comes to working up a patient with a unilateral swollen leg for the potential of DVT. If you're working at a hospital where the radiology department doesn't provide 24-hour ultrasound, which most of us are, then we often find ourselves in a situation where you need to decide if you're going to do a D-dimer or if you're going to treat on spec with low molecular weight heparin and arrange an outpatient ultrasound, if you're just going to arrange the outpatient ultrasound and treat on spec. So there's a very tiny possible chance in a patient with an undifferentiated swollen leg to throw a pulmonary embolus in the day or two that it takes to get an outpatient ultrasound, which is why so many of us give a shot of low molecular rate heparin on spec just to cover our asses. I wonder whether that's the best way to practice medicine. We have Wells criteria to help us out in terms of deciding if a patient is low risk for DVT and when a patient is determined to be a low risk with a score of zero or one, then a negative D-dimer has been shown to effectively rule out DVT without even having to do an ultrasound. This being said, what is the role of emergency ultrasound at the bedside in the ED management of DVT? I think even in the era of well scores and D-dimers, we're ordering a heck of a lot of negative DVT formal ultrasounds. There's some studies suggesting greater than 95% of our scans are negative, um, which tells me that we have a lot of low-risk patients that we're still not comfortable sending home without doing some form of further investigation. And that's going to increase patient wait times, repeat visits, and it has its own associated morbidity. I think a rapid bedside test that can help cut at least a portion of those patients out um, and save them formal scans worthwhile. And I think that this is uh, doable. I think the literature does support that we can safely detect using two-point compression testing patients, certain select patient population for ruling out DVT. I think it's important to remember that the studies that have been done are are a select patient population. So we aren't looking at absolutely everyone. We're, We're looking at patients that they don't have chronic DVT. They don't have recurrent DVT. Some studies have actually also excluded the morbidly obese, which unfortunately is a, an area of people that are prone to DVT. So we do have to bear in mind that this isn't a panacea by any means. I'd be very interested to see really how useful the D-dimer will hold up in the era where we can actually just look ourselves with a rapid bedside test. And I, I certainly think there's some more studies coming down the pipeline that'll sort of help define, do we need to continue that at all? Or is it adding much more sensitivity to our testing? In terms of how it's realistically used in my center, we're in that group where we can't get after hours ultrasound in most cases, and our hours are limited on weekends. And we are seeing patients where they're low probability, but we give them the low molecular weight heparin and have them come back in a day or two. And what we're seeing is that if this patient is negative on the bedside scan, I'm comfortable not giving them any low molecular weight heparin and then getting a follow-up scan in a couple of days. I think politics plays a large part in how we're incorporating this right now. So I think a lot of us, at least in Canada, are uh, still getting a confirmatory uh, test with the ultrasound department. I certainly know there are other centers south of the border where they don't, that the emerged physician's ultrasound is the one that the patient is discharged based on that result. And they either get a repeat scan in five to seven days if you are worried about the possibility of a below knee DVT, or they don't get another one at all. The one thing I would say that we continue to run along, especially as we were training, 
was to make sure that we were aware of what could give you a false positive. And of course, those are lymph nodes because a lot of these patients that we're seeing big swollen legs have good reasons often to have swollen lymph nodes. And so something that I thought was key in my training was identifying where the saphenous enters the femoral vein, following that as your more proximal point, and then, of course, the popliteal for the second point. You had mentioned below-knee DVTs, and that sometimes a week following the initial visit, those patients will get another ultrasound to detect the possibility of a below-knee DVT that has then propagated proximally. What do you think about the argument that small thrombi are regularly missed by these focused emergency exams and that they tell you nothing about below knee DVTs and so that we really shouldn't be relying on them to rule out DVT. This is the argument that some of the radiologists will give. I, I think we're we're getting a bit confused in surrogate markers here because sure, there are little thrombi, but are they cl- clinically significant? And there is no evidence out there. The largest studies that have been done, there's no evidence to support that the so-called missed thrombi are, have an effect on clinical, uh, measurable patient clinical outcomes. And so I, I think that they, that has been carted out as a, a reason not to do two-point, but it's not based on clinical outcome data. It's just based on, well, we found this. And I'll throw in there that, I, you know, and it's the same way with, I think, as our tests are getting more and more sensitive, we're getting these incidental findings and we're not knowing what to make of them. And so along with these very tiny, tiny thrombi, we're going, well, what about the, the microscopic pulmonary embolus? Is that clinically relevant? And I probably, I suspect it's not. My wife's a pathologist. And if you ask her on autopsy, how many times she sees incidental thrombi, they're there all the time. This is, does it have anything to do with patients' morbidity and mortality? Likely not. So I don't think there's evidence to support that a full leg Doppler makes any difference in clinically measurable outcomes in our patients versus the two-point. I think two-point has been shown to find the significant DVTs, and uh, I think we're still there's still a lot of debate about the baloney. Even with formal full-leg scans, the miss rate on balonies is extremely high on first visit. So I think that uh, this this is a test that if you're comfortable generating the image, that it is a good test for Emerge Docs to do, and I don't think we're missing the clinically significant clots. We're going to be talking about how to interpret the literature of emergency ultrasound a bit later, but one of the studies that I thought was intriguing when it comes to DVT was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine of December of last year. It was called Compression Ultrasonography of the Lower Extremity with Portable Vascular Ultrasonography Can Accurately Detect DVT in the Emergency Department. And it was a convenient sample of 200 patients where the physicians, after only a 10-minute training session, at a 100% sensitivity and 99% specificity for DVT. This kind of seems hard to believe that after 10 minutes, you can get that good numbers. How do you interpret this study? As much as I'm a complete enthusiast about point-of-care ultrasound, I don't think this quite passes the sniff test for me. I think from years of teaching the scan, there's a learning curve to properly imaging the vessels at the QD bifurcations. As a matter of fact, this study, they did not image at the saphenous takeoff, which I think is important to ruling out the more proximal uh, clots. The other thing that's not clear is the Irish physician did two scans each in, in this study. And as we know, a lot of these interns and residents, they've probably been given a lot of additional ultrasound training. So they may already have a baseline and be very competent in the core uh, applications. And so to add this skill, it's a bit of a misnomer to say, oh, they only needed 10 minutes of training. So for instance, if they're very comfortable in putting in a femoral central line, they're already comfortable about finding the correct vessel and knowing the anatomy in that area to begin with. So 
it might 10 minutes more. It's just building on a skill they already have versus the physician where if you're to interpret this and say, well, I can just take someone who's never held a pro before and give them a 10 minute workshop is, I think is misleading. I don't think that that would hold water in the real world. The other thing that to interpret this study is the to look at uh, the prevalence of DVT in this uh, particular urban teaching center's population. It was almost 30% of, of the patients ended up having DVT, and I frankly don't think that reflects um, the population that get rule out DVT scans in most centers, especially in the community. Um, like I said, there's been previous studies that have shown a 95% negative rate, and I've heard of some hospitals with even higher than that. So I think that will affect your your outcome measures as well. And I think also it was a convenience sample, which means these physicians are probably clinically, they're deciding to eliminate certain people from the study because they perceive they're going to be a difficult person to scan. I think we, you know, that's a confounder here. And, and also patients where they have a very low expectation that they'll get a positive, they'll probably be less likely to get a scan in a study situation. Whereas in the real world where the patient comes in and the family doctor's worried they had to have a DVT and there's all this pressure to get the scan, even though you may clinically not think it's relevant, you end up getting it. So I, I think that we're dealing with slightly different patient populations here. So while I, I love I love the study's results, I'd like to see it replicated before I believe it. And I don't think it uh, it applies to all of our patient populations. So like I said in the introduction, you have to take the literature of emergency ultrasound with a grain of salt. While some of the studies are better designed than this one we've been talking about, there's very few RCTs with big numbers that we can really hang our hats on. I think what's cool about it, though, is it asks a lot of good questions. So it also, I think, highlights that when we develop applications that are good for the emergency department so that they work with our patient flow and our workflow and so they can be done quickly in under three minutes, those need to be simple applications that can be carried out quickly on the majority of our patients. And perhaps that's what this hints at, is that this is an application that's pretty simplistic in how it can be carried out. Now, of course, there's complex thinking behind it, but you know these are the kind of applications we need to try to develop for the emergency department, applications that can be picked up quickly and answer real clinical questions. And it's analogous, so the ocular scan for ruling out retinal detachment, there's been a couple of studies with those same kind of really impressive numbers with a minimum, like minutes of training. These people had almost 100% sensitivity. And I, I think that, again, it, that it's a short, quick, fairly easy scan to learn. And I think that the, the truth will be that it'll be something that we can do effectively. I, I just think that uh, we, we should be a bit cautious about how we interpret these numbers when it's still fairly early on. So some of these studies we've been talking about are just examples of the vast body of literature out there for emergency ultrasound. And few, if any, of these studies are really well-designed RCTs with thousands of patients showing robust outcome differences. First, how should we interpret this vast literature in terms of our daily practice? And second, do we really need big RCTs with robust outcome data to change our daily practice? Let's start with Dr. Chenkin. So as much as I love ultrasound, uh, one of the big pitfalls remains some of the literature that's out there to support what we're doing has continued to have some major problems with it. And you need to be aware of this when you're interpreting the literature and incorporating it into your practice. One of the big problems is the generalizability of a lot of the studies. If you look at the authors on a lot of the studies, they're often the practitioners who are performing the ultrasound scans. This causes a lot of problems in terms of their innate bias in terms of the outcomes of the studies, as well as their training. You have to look at the training that the people performing the scans had who were actually in the studies. 
and a, a lot of the, at least the early studies, many of the people performing the scans had advanced ultrasound training before even doing the, um, the scans they were doing for the study, including RDMS certification. So you have to compare yourself to the people who are performing the scans in the studies and saying, does this really apply to me? Um, do I have the same skills and background and knowledge base as the person who is doing the scan in the study? It's also really important to look at the number of practitioners that were involved in the studies. A lot of the early studies, and still some being published now, have one or two people actually doing the scans, but they enroll 100 patients. The actual end for the study is not 100, it's actually two. You want to see how many practitioners can actually learn this, so you really need to enroll as many different practitioners from different backgrounds to increase the generalizability of the data to show that this can be learned and applied by practitioners from all different backgrounds. Another big problem with a lot of the literature is a lot of the different bias that's in, included in them. In some studies, the outcomes were actually likely to have been influenced by the results of the ultrasound. An example of this is the studies that looked at outcomes of cardiac arrest after looking at whether there was cardiac standstill or not. Unfortunately, in all the studies, the person who was running the cardiac arrest was not blinded to whether there was cardiac standstill or not. And so this can uh, produce a bit of sort of destiny bias where, where the person who was running the cardiac arrest saw there was no cardiac standstill and may have uh, influenced their decision to prolong the resuscitation, thereby affecting the outcome of the study. Uh, so you do really need to look at whether there was blinding or not. And unfortunately, a lot of these studies, the people managing the patients were not blinded to the ultrasound results. We've mentioned already before, another major problem with these studies is the idea of convenient sampling. And we know that emergency ultrasound is very operator dependent and very patient dependent. And certainly when you're first learning how to use ultrasound, we practice on young, thin people. And a lot of times people who are learning ultrasound at the beginning think this is a very easy thing to learn because they're only scanning young, thin people. And they very quickly figure out once they're in the real world and using this in their day-to-day -day practice, that scanning actual patients is a totally different scenario. And similarly with these studies, if they're only enrolling patients that are perceived to be easy scans, their numbers are going to probably look more impressive than what you can actually generate when you're using this in your practice. Another big bias is um, the fact that most of the people who conduct these studies, uh, just like everyone at this table here, are big ultrasound geeks. And we are enthusiastic about ultrasound, we want to see success with the techniques, and so we have a big bias towards producing positive results, and that probably plays a role in terms of what gets published and what doesn't, as well as perhaps the outcomes of the studies. Another major issue with ultrasound research has to do with outcomes, as, as you mentioned. Um, there are many studies looking at sensitivity and specificity of our scans and comparing them to other standards, but there are very few studies that actually have patient-oriented outcomes as their primary outcomes. There are a few groups that have started to address this problem. There's the SOAP group, or Sonography Outcomes Assessment Program, which has published a few studies that try to focus more on outcomes that are relevant to the patients. An example of that would be the SOAP2 trial, which looked at um, times to the operating room for patients with positive FAST and showed that it significantly decreased times to the OR. Unfortunately, these studies still very rarely report numbers on morbidity and mortality. And those are very difficult outcomes to show a difference in. So it's not surprising that we haven't seen a lot of studies with this. Um, there is one study that looked at survival and that was at a center that retrospectively looked at survival from penetrating cardiac injury before and after the introduction of emergency ultrasound. 
and they found that the survival increased from 57% to 100% with patients with penetrating cardiac injury. Um, unfortunately, this study has other limitations, but it does show sort of the, the types of outcomes that would be helpful to see in the ultrasound literature. So the bottom line with the ultrasound literature is I think a lot of them are hypothesis generating. We do need to see uh, coordinated effort, I think, to improve the overall quality of the design of these trials. And I think we're just at the beginning now of what we're going to see in the future as this does gain momentum and uh, there is an increasing push for high quality ultrasound research. say is when we're looking at why we don't have big randomized control trials using ultrasound, unfortunately there's no big drug company ready to uh, sponsor the use of ultrasound for any of the applications we use, which can often be a big pitfall when it comes to creating and designing big randomized control trials. And in addition, a lot of the, the techniques that we are using ultrasound for now have been incorporated into our daily practice. Personally, I wouldn't feel that it would be ethical to randomize a trauma patient to getting a fast versus no fast to see their impact on mortality, since this is so ingrained in our, our training now. And I doubt that any research ethics board would approve such a study. So the problem becomes, once this becomes standard practice for a lot of the techniques that we're using, it's no longer really feasible to go back and then randomize patients to getting or not getting that specific diagnostic test. So I think for a lot of the techniques that we're currently using ultrasound for, unfortunately, we're never going to have that big randomized control trial that proves without a doubt that it improves mortality or morbidity. However, I don't think that is the standard that we need to start using it. And I think everybody who's incorporated ultrasound into their practice from experience knows that this does have a huge impact on patient outcomes. And we don't need to see those giant trials to prove that to ourselves. That's an amazing, classically Canadian academic perspective on, uh, on this subject. I love it. Let's try and uh, get some other opinions around the table. Dr. Uh, Fisher, I know that while you have the utmost of respect for Dr. Chenkin, may have a different opinion on this one, but let it rip. Yeah, I, I think those are all great points. And I think when I look at the literature now, what I think is that we are really still in this pioneering phase where we're, where we have a lot of ultrasound pioneers in the emergency department trying to get different ideas to other centers. And so I think that there's a lot of value in one or two ultrasonographers doing an application to show that it's feasible. So the, the way I look at it is I kind of want to break down the literature by application. And for example, if I'm looking at nerve block literature, I don't need a big randomized control trial to show me that there's a benefit to using ultrasound for nerve blocks. I just need to see that it's something that's feasible because I know there's a huge body of anesthesia literature that already supports its use. And I want to see that translated to the ED. I do agree that it's going to be kind of a renaissance almost once we have enough operators to do some of the big randomized control trials on some of the, the more major techniques. But I don't want to fall into the pitfall of, of having everyone blinded because I think what makes emergency ultrasound a little bit different is that we have that ability to generate a pretest probability at the bedside. And that's what makes emergency ultrasound different than uh, a study that's done by a diagnostic imager in their, in their dark room. And so I wouldn't want to lose that as part of how we do our research. So I think uh, I, I totally agree. It's important to know what the level of training is how many people have done it, what the gold standard is. 
but I really see us coming to a real renaissance. And I think that the work that's been done so far has been really valuable. And I think that even the fact that we're having this discussion and we're all on the same page as to what the limitations are and how to correct them shows how far we've matured in this discipline. We're still in a bit of a catch-22. We don't have enough people who have got adequate training to get a nice big generalizable study. And yet we also get, well, how can we support training them when there isn't evidence that it's going to do any good? And so you're kind of stuck. You're like, well, we've got to get enough people trained in order to do a study to prove this is the thing to do. And so I think as with other areas of medicine, that this is going to happen. We're just, because of anecdotal evidence, because of expert opinion, because of our alternatives don't look any better, they may not be worse, but they don't look any better. We'll at least get enough inertia, get enough people that have adequate training, generate good quality images that we can proceed with some bigger studies that we can apply more widely. But we're still absolutely in the pioneering phase. And that part of the job of the pioneers is to convince everyone else, look, this is good enough, at least for you to learn how to do it. And then once you've learned how to do it, we can just, we can truly show if it's worth continuing to do it or if we should go even further with it. But to, to take some of our opposing colleagues saying, well, there's no evidence to do it. You should never do it. Well, I'd say that then there'd be a lot of medicine that would not have proceeded whatsoever because the, the amount of literature supporting a lot of the things other specialists do was completely lacking in the early days as well. Yeah, I think part of the importance mm -hmm. of doing ongoing ultrasound research is to prove to the general medical community, the radiologists and the internists and everyone else, that this is a valid tool that we can be using in the emergency department. And I can't tell you the number of times where I've done a scan and then I tell the internists, I think this patient has X and they kind of blow it off as, you know, oh, well, that's just your portable ultrasound scan and I'm not going to hang my hat on that. So I think the research is important, not just to prove to ourselves that things are valuable, but to, to prove to the rest of the medical community. Okay, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> Except not, a, not enough fighting there. I was, no, you know, no, we're all too Canadian. <laughs> yes, I agree. We're all, all willing to agree too much. I didn't hear too many sorries in there. There should have been some more sorries <laughs> to make it really Canadian. We've still got a whole lot of ultrasound goodies coming up on next month's episode where we'll talk about soft tissue infection, first trimester bleeds, AAA, cholecystitis, appendicitis, urinary retention, and ultrasound guided procedures. Before we wrap up this part of the episode, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Will Rogers. Good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. There's still time to sign up for the University Health Network Emergency Medicine Conference November 1st and 2nd at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. This will be a fabulous CME activity for physicians, residents and nurses with a great variety of speakers and topics. Past emergency medicine guest experts like David Carr, Anil Chopra, Stella Yu and Joel Yaffe will be speaking this year, as well as myself. 
So I hope to see you all there. To find out more about the conference, go to www.emergencymedicine.utoronto.ca and look under Upcoming Events. Until next time, take it easy.